0: From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom, I'm Kelly Knoyer. This hour, we're focused on the intersection of crime and homelessness. That's not to say that all unhoused individuals are criminals. That is certainly not the case. But homelessness itself is criminalized. The past year has seen increasing pressure on the homeless in New Hanover County. County ordinances and trespassing laws have tightened on them, pushing them into narrow strips of trees at the margins of the community. When there's nowhere that you're illegally allowed to exist, your very life becomes the crime of trespassing. At the same time, New Hanover County's justice system has moved towards compassion and kindness for the unhoused in the region, which we'll touch on later in this show. But before we get into all that, let's debunk some myths and answer some frequently asked questions. To do that, let's bring in my editor, Ben Shockman, to act as my foil. Hi, Ben.
1: Hi, Kelly. Thanks for using me as a handy stand in for our listeners since they can't be here.
0: You are so welcome. Why don't you ask me some questions that we get from a lot of locals who are concerned about homelessness?
1: Sure, let's start with the most obvious one. How many people are homeless in the Cape Fear region and how does that compare to previous years?
0: So unfortunately, the numbers have gone up. Unsheltered homeless have gone from 150 in 2022's point-in-time count to 259 in 2023. That is a 72% increase in unsheltered homelessness in just a year. The overall homeless count went up by 60% as well, with 558 total unhoused individuals in town as of January 25, 2023. Not exactly a positive trend, and according to the Cape Fear Housing Coalition, the driver is certainly increased housing
1: costs. So real quick before I move on to my next question, what is the difference between unsheltered homeless and overall homeless?
0: So unsheltered homeless are people who do not have a place to sleep that night and are sleeping in the streets without any kind of roof over their head. If you are sheltered, it could be that you are in a hotel room. You might be bunked up with a neighbor or a friend or a family member, but it's not your name that's on that lease. You might be staying in an actual homeless shelter or in transitional housing. So there's multiple ways that shelter is defined. I will say most people assume that these point in time counts are an undercount. And if you look at the number of calls that the continuum of care gets in this region, it far outweighs what we hear about for the point in time count. So we know that these numbers are an undercount, but it's using the same methodology every year. So we think it's consistent in terms of trends.
1: Okay, here's another question. And this is something I've heard a lot, not just from readers and listeners, but from our local officials, too. And it's that some people choose to be homeless. This might be a myth, it might not be, but we certainly hear it a lot. Uh, For example, we got a comment from a listener who criticized our last newsroom because it didn't address homeless people who are addicted to drugs. The commenter said they have a family member who, quote, preferred sleeping under the memorial bridge with his wino buddies rather than living in a very nice home in Forest Hills.
0: Well, thank you for that comment, listener. Top response I've gotten from advocates when they hear this is, Who on earth would actively choose to be homeless if there were a better alternative that they can afford that meets their needs? And to more directly answer that question, I do think addiction plays a role in housing insecurity for a lot of people. According to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, 30 percent of unhoused people abused alcohol and 26 percent abused drugs. Sometimes homeless people lose their housing because they are addicted. That's something that we'll delve into later this hour when we take a look at Addiction Recovery Court. But it's also really hard to be homeless, and many people cope by self-medicating with alcohol or drugs. Perhaps they've lost their housing because of mental illness or trauma or domestic violence, and then once they're on the streets, they self-medicate by using controlled substances. I do also want to interrogate the question, though. We now in this country consider drug addiction a chronic mental illness, so why should that be an excuse to allow someone to live in the streets if they might prefer to live somewhere else instead? As Liz Carbone at the Keep Your Housing Coalition likes to say, the number one cause of homelessness isn't addiction, it's not mental health, it's lack of availability of housing that works for the individual in question. And that is reflected in the data. Drugs and mental illness rates don't seem to drive homelessness. It's not that different in different parts of the country. It's the cost of housing. That's why lower-cost Midwestern cities don't have the same level of homelessness as expensive coastal cities.
1: Okay, so earlier you were talking about kind of all the different ways that you could be homeless. I mean, that might be crashing on a friend's couch short term or staying with family or staying in a hotel. All of these are pretty transitory, temporary solutions. But I don't think that's what people think about or are talking about when they're talking about homelessness.
0: Yeah, I think it's the really visible unsheltered homeless that people are often talking about. I do think that the most visible unhoused individuals in our community are often the most unwell individuals. They may be coping with severe mental illness like schizophrenia, while also self-medicating with drugs and while living in the streets. While a lot of passers-by fear people in these conditions, I want to make a very clear point here. Homeless people are far more likely to be victims of violent crimes than perpetrators. National studies show nearly half of them have experienced violence. As for the criminality of homeless people, many, many of the charges I've seen homeless people face are victimless crimes or nuisance crimes. I'm talking about open container charges, disorderly conduct, trespassing by being on a door stoop or public property after hours, sometimes drug charges, even felonies, but for low-level possession. So being homeless means you're more likely to go to jail for things you wouldn't be caught doing if you had the privacy of your own home. And on the flip side of that, getting charged with a crime and spending time in jail can make you a lot more likely to end up being homeless. So it goes both ways.
1: That is true, at least in my anecdotal experience. I've seen people who were employed and housed lose everything after a quick dip in jail. And sometimes people treat that like it's not a big deal or it might even course correct someone. But I've watched the impacts and sort of the domino effect that it has on people. I'll never forget Back in the early 2000s, when I first moved here to Wilmington, I was working in a restaurant downtown, and one of my coworkers got a charge. It was on a Friday, so he spent a couple of days in jail over the weekend waiting for his first appearance. During that time, uh, he wasn't able to get in contact with work, so he had a couple of no call, no shows, which in the restaurant world means you are fired. You know, it took him a couple of days to get out of jail, um, and at this point, he's missed a weekend. Um, which is the most, you know, the high money earning days for front of the house staff. So he's he's behind on revenue. Uh, he's been fired from his job. He was evicted from his apartment, which he shared with someone else. Now, he probably could have fought that um, and maybe even won, but he didn't have access to an attorney. He didn't know his rights. And and things really snowballed. And I, I hate to say this, but we lost track of him. I don't know what happened after that. But This is not what happens to every person who gets arrested, but you can, if you think about it, you can see how the chain reaction happens.
0: It's a destabilizing experience to go to jail.
1: Well, we do always get this argument. People who are homeless may have done something to get there, and it's their fault that they can't manage their own lives. Why should taxpayers or anyone else spend money to house someone like that?
0: It's not always something that they've done to deserve to be homeless. Sometimes it's domestic violence, or because someone is queer and their family kicks them out. I would hope that we don't think those folks deserve to be homeless. But even if there is a moral argument that's allowed to stand because of drug addiction or something similar, the answer to the why help them question is pretty simple. Housing people who are homeless is generally much cheaper than jailing them, running shelters, and managing their ER visits. And it's much more humane. The other important point is that people who have housing stability are better equipped to become contributing members of society, whether through work or through friendships and familial relationships they may have lost when they were in the streets. That is the housing first idea that the federal government now supports. Once someone is in housing, they're in a better position to get rehab, to get consistent medications and to get the health care that they need.
1: I think that's a good point. We do hear from people who are particularly frustrated, especially with people who are homeless cyclically. So they've been helped, they've been given short term housing, and then they end up back on the streets. I hear it from people all the time that they feel they are throwing good money after bad. But at the same time, you know, these are still human beings. And we hear from plenty of people who work in the homeless space that we should approach people who are having that serious of a struggle with compassion instead of condemnation. I mean, particularly if the people that are hurting the most are themselves.
0: That is true. I also wanted to share some compelling data with you, if you don't mind.
1: I like data. Fire away.
0: Let's start with the cycle of homelessness in jail. Homeless people who are living unsheltered experience 10 times the number of police contacts as sheltered homeless individuals, and they are nine times as likely to spend at least a night in jail. That's according to surveys by the California Policy Lab.
1: I mean, that makes sense. People are a lot more likely to call the cops on someone they see than someone they don't see because they're, you know, inside a building.
0: Anecdotally, it's true as well. I went to first appearances at the New Hanover County Courthouse for several weeks late last year, and on Mondays, I would consistently see numerous people who'd been pulled in over the weekend and couldn't afford to post bail. Their addresses were set at 811 Martin Street. That's the address for Good Shepherd Center. But often, Good Shepherd Center hadn't even heard of these people.
1: So it seemed like the police were just listing them there because they didn't have any other address?
0: Yeah. I also saw several people show up on video call from the jail on a Monday morning with charges like misdemeanor larceny for stealing $7 worth of food at a convenience store or for trespassing. They would often refuse a public attorney, and the judge presiding would let them out of jail on a guilty plea sentenced to time served. I saw that happen a dozen times over a few weeks.
1: I've certainly seen the same thing at first appearance hearings, and it's just a lot of cycling in and out of jail.
0: Yeah, it is. Sam Bakto at the Urban Institute studies this stuff and she calls it the homelessness jail cycle, and it's exactly what you just described. It is people who are picked up for offenses that are generally related to their state of being unhoused, as opposed to um, aggressive behavior from them or other types of crimes that are more willful. It's like a trespassing, uh, loitering, public intoxication, or other public offenses that are mostly related to the person's being outside, as opposed to their behavior. Meaning that if they did those things inside, they wouldn't be arrested.
1: (laughs) Well, not to be obtuse, but what's the problem with having someone staying a night in jail for a petty crime?
0: I mean, it is the law. If someone commits a crime, even if that crime is based on their existence, then they can go to jail until they post bond or go to sentencing. But that costs the taxpayers money, $100 a day, according to DA Ben David. One um, study from our organization, the Urban Institute, um, data from Denver found that one individual had 24 contacts with police in just 90 days, and that cost the city almost $4,000. That's expensive, and it's not even accounting for other costs society pays for, like stays in the emergency room that wouldn't have happened if the person simply had housing.
1: Now, you mentioned before that a homeless person would face consequences for going to jail. Does that go beyond just a criminal record?
0: Yeah. I mean, the jail stay and the misdemeanor are just the beginning for them, just like for your coworker. They might have all their stuff stolen, including their ID, their bed, maybe their phone. That can set them back so many steps that they'll lose contact with their social worker, their family, their network, maybe their parole officer if they have one.
1: Yeah, that sounds rough.
0: It really does trap people in a cycle where they can't really get out, particularly if there aren't many options for shelter for them in the county. Criminalizing life on the streets means people are more likely to go to jail, and going to jail for short stints makes it hard to get the stability necessary to get off the streets. But North Carolina has tried to find a more humane approach to the justice system, and Wilmington has tried even harder to bring some kindness to homeless people when they do meet the police. I got to learn about the program recently while taking a ride along with the Getting Home program, which is Wilmington Police Department's response to homelessness.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting program, and if people want to know more about that, we'll have links on the show page to your previous reporting about it.
0: Yeah, And I just want to say there's a couple ways it can go when the police interact with a homeless individual. Initially, when the program was implemented, it was focused on downtown. That meant officers might come across the same people while they were on patrol. And they still do come to places like the day shelter to say hello and to check in. Some of the individuals who come to the downtown day shelter are actually happy and excited to see these officers. Others are still a little bit wary.
1: That sounds a lot more like outreach and social work than police work.
0: It's definitely both. But the program expanded outside of downtown, and now a lot more of their work is responsive rather than this uh, outreach kind of strategy. When I went along with Sergeant Ron Evans, who's in charge of the program, I hopped in his truck to respond to a call, then follow up on a couple different calls, some of them from more than a week ago.
1: Okay, since you bring it up, I've been wondering about the WPD trucks. Why do the police have pickup trucks instead of cars?
0: The Getting Home program is grant funded, and the grant actually mandated that they have trucks. It's not the only program through WPD that has trucks, but when you see them downtown and they don't have a trailer for towing horses or something like that, it's almost certainly the Getting Home program. Here's Evans talking about it. Just to
2: say there's somebody that wants to go from one place to another, uh, maybe an appointment or social services or things of that nature, and if they have a bunch of bags or a bike or something like that, Um, that you can't necessarily fit in a patrol car. We'll give these guys trucks and then you can just throw it in the bed of the truck and take them to where they need to go.
0: We met a guy in the woods behind Food Lion who promised Evans he would be moving along once his wife got back. So I asked the sergeant, If you do come back because he he mentioned he doesn't have a way of moving stuff Mm -hmm. would you help him pack up and move
3: at that point or
2: absolutely yeah they have all their belongings and they they have a place that they want to go whether it's coastal horizons or link or dss or something and again like we were saying before one of the reasons why he apparently um between him and his wife have a lot of belongings so listen we can give you a ride we can place your uh, belongings in the in the pickup truck and take you across town and to your wherever you want to go to to try to get some absolutely absolutely
0: i mean in this case it sounds like he's just planning to go camp somewhere else would you help him move camp he
2: may be and that's um that's a tricky one because we don't necessarily want to condone being on people's private property if they don't have a place to go we sort of kind of let them fend for themselves after we make the attempt to find some type of shelter somewhere
0: he makes his approaches in a really friendly way and offers everyone he meets a card with the contact information for a social worker. They obviously have the option to call or not, if they have a phone at least.
1: All right, so I got to ask, how many people take them up on this offer?
0: So according to the county social worker I interviewed about this, Caitlin Maddox, they've put 300 people in their database and 100 of them are actively engaged in services. That's really not bad considering the police document everyone they interact with.
1: One in three is actually probably pretty good, but didn't WPD add an enforcement arm to its getting home program?
0: Yes. Over the summer, WPD added two more officers to the unit who are focused on enforcement over outreach. I didn't get to tour with them, but it's my impression that they basically play bad cop to the outreach officers good cop. If someone who's already been warned to leave a property is still there, for instance, it might be that the enforcement officers are the ones who go back to clear them out more forcefully, and it keeps the friendlier faces a little more separated.
1: I mean, does that actually work? Do folks learn to trust some cops rather than others?
0: Some of them do. They're actually pretty disarming. We went to an abandoned apartment complex and found some folks in tents behind one of the buildings. Here's Sergeant Evans chatting with them.
4: Um, But yeah, I'll just get cleaned up and I'll get out of here, okay?
2: Before we leave, I'm going to get Officer Costello to give you some cards of some yeah. of the um, social workers that we work with okay. um, to see if we can hey, to see if we can, you know, try to provide some services for you. See what, what you may or may not. Are you working anywhere? Uh,
4: no, I gotta go get my ID. I just got stolen. Okay. Yeah.
0: As you can hear, Evans talks with a calm voice, asks engaging and caring questions, offers resources and support. He really seems to care about the people he's interacting with, and he desperately wants more housing to be available in the community to help end homelessness.
2: For some of them, life has just taken a really, really hard left turn, whether it's divorce, whether it's a death in the family, loss of a job. these are, are human beings. They're citizens.
1: Okay, so engagement and compassion is good, but you did mention an enforcement arm. And I know you've seen plenty of homeless people show up in court.
0: Right. Evans and his outreach team have also certainly arrested people in the past when they're noncompliant. And the enforcement team has as well. But I think a lot of the arrests of unhoused individuals come from police officers who are not part of the team because they respond to a call for service.
2: I tell people all the time, one of my little go-to phrases is homelessness within itself is not a crime. It's not a crime for someone to be homeless. At the same time, that does not give that population free reign to just wreak havoc on people's property, leave trash, defecate, things of that nature. Um, The chief has given instructions that, you know, we are to take a zero-tolerance approach when it comes to trespassing understand you know for some of these people life has taken a hard left turn for them so they are in the predicament that they're in um it's challenging at times because from a law enforcement perspective you're going to go out you're going to deal with outreach you're going to provide services or help to provide services to those who who need it or want it and then on the flip side of that you know you have to deal with the enforcement we're not going to allow folks to in essence break the law
1: Okay, here's another question we get from readers and listeners and a lot. They are arresting people.
2: Yes, they are sometimes
0: arresting people. Even then, though, Evans says he rarely feels like he's being threatened in any real way. I think that's one of the misconceptions that's kind of hard to dispel, the idea that homeless people are dangerous or something. But Evans believes his work on the Getting Home team is a lot safer than the jobs of a lot of other officers. He's only had his guard go up a little bit higher in three or four cases in the past year of the program. I think that's a lot less than the average police officer.
1: Um, Anecdotally, I would say yes. So tell me a little bit more about this abandoned apartment building that you went to with WPD.
0: That was the eeriest part of the ride-along, for sure. It's an apartment complex called Port South Village off Coville Avenue.
2: So we'll get out here and walk the property and see if we come across anybody.
0: It's a series of low brick buildings. All of them have been boarded up since the last time the police cleared it of trespassers.
2: This is a pro- I don't know how long this place has been abandoned. It's been for quite some time since
0: Some of the boarded up doors have been busted back open, but it's dark inside.
2: Police department, anybody inside?
0: Evans and Costello walk down the dark hallways with flashlights, past graffiti and trash, and a pristine bicycle.
2: Do something. That door's wide open.
0: Costello kept patrolling through, looking for any occupants, while Evans described his ideal of replacing these empty buildings with a shelter.
2: You would think the property owners would, for come, demolish it or remodel it and open it up as a as a homeless shelter or some type of something like that. But
0: housing.
1: Yeah. Was there anyone inside?
0: No. There was evidence that people had recently occupied the space, including the bedding, the bikes, water, needles, and an entire case of rotting eggs. But the officers hypothesized that the occupants had just broken back in to remove their belongings. And we did find some campers on the property, a few tents set up behind one of the buildings, like I said. The officers ended up talking to three people there that morning, but they didn't give them any citations.
1: I'm not going to lie, this isn't really what I expected when you said you were going to take a ride along with WPD. Last time one of my colleagues went on a police ride along, they were going with dozens of agents all across Brunswick County serving warrants.
0: Yeah, I didn't really know what to expect. I think the mission has changed a lot since they moved away from the emphasis downtown. And obviously, Chief Donnie Williams having a zero tolerance policy for trespassing kind of changes the tenor of their relationship with the unhoused. They do end up arresting people when it's required, but Overall, it's a pretty compassionate team.
1: Well, thank you for bringing us along with them, Kelly.
0: Thank you for joining me, Ben. When we come back from the break, we'll get into what happens when unhoused people do end up going to jail and how they experience court. You're listening to The Newsroom. We'll be right back. Back to the newsroom, I'm Kelly Knoyer. In the last segment, we tackled some myths and frequently asked questions about homelessness and took a look at the way Wilmington's police department is addressing the issue. That's designed to be compassionate, but it also inevitably leads to some arrests and brings unsheltered and homeless people into the court system, for better or for worse. Going into court is an intimidating experience, almost by design. You enter the building through a narrow corridor and immediately go through a metal detector. The winding hallways are enclosed with sterile lighting, and you probably have to ask a sheriff's deputy for directions. When you finally make it to the right courtroom, there are public defenders and district attorneys shuffling through paperwork near the bench, but you and the rest of the public wait quietly in the spectator seating. Sometimes the deputies will call someone out in the crowd, no phones allowed, no hats, take those sunglasses off your head. It's intimidating even as a reporter, let alone someone charged with a crime. Those suspects and defendants come in, heads bowed, or they appear periodically on a screen, telecommuting in from the jail one by one. If you couldn't post bail before your first appearance, that's the way you meet your judge, through Zoom. Not everyone goes through the court process the same way, and a lot of that, frankly, depends on how much money you have. Either way, your judge may be running through several dozen cases in just a few hours, so they have to move quickly, Many of them do try to bring compassion, even in those crunched circumstances, like Judge James Face in the third.
4: They are souls. They are human beings. And that's really what plays into the, the feeling at the end of the day, did I do the right thing today? Can I, can I put my head down on that pillow and sleep, knowing that I treated a human being? with the decency and respect, while holding him or her accountable, while keeping the community safe, is one that I personally take seriously and that my colleagues do as well.
0: When it comes to low-level offenses, and specifically the indigent and unhoused, judges have the opportunity to sentence offenders to the high or low end of sentencing guidelines. Second-degree trespassing, for example, is a Class 3 misdemeanor. That means the maximum penalty is 20 days in jail and a $200 fine. But the minimum sentence is one day in jail. Here's Judge Lindsay McKee.
5: You know, often that's why you see they get a day or two in jail because they've already served that time because the maximum amount of time they could face would be 20 days. And really it becomes a balancing act then to decide, is it is it necessary to give them another 18 days in jail for the open container? Or have they already served their two days in jail and that's sufficient?
0: In those cases, I've seen a defendant waive his right to an attorney and ask to represent himself to, quote, get it over with. The judge in that case that I witnessed saw that he had been in for more than a month on trespassing and open container charges. The defendant pleaded guilty, and the judge sentenced him to time served. After more than a month in jail, he almost couldn't believe he was about to go free. That's not always the case, though, because judges have different perspectives on compassion. Judge J.H. Corpening, for example, values personal freedom over almost everything else. But Judge Faison has kept homeless individuals in jail because of severe weather conditions.
4: In many cases, jail is a step up for some folks, you know. I've had cases outside of treatment court, but just in regular court, where an individual asked me to put him in jail because they had nowhere else to go.
0: Judge McKee has done the same thing. She's had people ask to stay in jail because it offers some shelter. Imagine that level of desperation to make your own freedom a secondary priority to your base needs. Most people who go into jail have something to lose, but the unhoused are often in such a tough place, they have little left. What they do have may be lost the moment that they're arrested, their possessions left unsecured and unprotected in the streets or in the elements. It's worth talking about the cost while we're here. District Attorney Ben David has said it costs the county $100 per inmate per day to keep people in jail. And to him, it's only worthwhile to keep certain people in jail. That is, dangerous people.
6: We recognize that the vast majority of people who are coming through the criminal justice system are here on relatively minor things. Our jail needs to be considered a scarce resource. We want violent people in there so that they can't hurt others. And when they are reoffending while they're on pretrial release, we want them in.
0: In the early 2000s, a tough-on-crime approach had prison and jail populations on the rise. It was an expensive trend that might have led to a lot of expensive new prisons being built. So researchers dug into the problem and created a new law. The Justice Reinvestment Act passed in 2011 and changed sentencing guidelines and myriad other elements of the criminal justice system. The law codifies the use of risk and needs assessments to manage prison and jail populations and determine community risk when it comes to sentencing. That also modified parole and probation, making the system a little bit more flexible. People who make mistakes can be put in jail for a quick dip, just a couple of days, instead of immediately serving out their entire sentence. The expansion of parole services was a major component of the JRA. With a risk and needs assessment in place, judges have a really clear set of guidelines that tell them how likely a defendant is to reoffend. The JRA also touches on pretrial release with a better understanding of the risk to the public from letting someone out on bond. And it made it clear that low-level offenders don't really need to be in jail. It's a waste of resources that could be used on more serious criminals. Here's Ben David again.
6: What we want to keep out of our jail to make room for the folks I just mentioned are people who are in poverty, the ones committing minor offenses. The courthouse
0: has an entire person whose job is devoted to getting people out of jail who don't really need to be there. Her name is Deputy Megan Crane. If one judge keeps an unhoused person in jail overnight, she'll bring them straight back to first appearances the next day to see if another judge will let them out.
6: In October alone, we we advocated for 23 unhoused people to be released from New Hanover County Jail. We, we know that, and that's a conservative number. These are people we know by name and who, through their, usually their indigent applications for a public defender, self-admit to their status of being unhoused.
0: David says releasing nonviolent offenders like that has saved the county $7.9 million since 2017. Each night in jail costs taxpayers $100. So getting people out quickly is a major way of saving money. At the same time, David doesn't give the unhoused a free pass.
6: We do not want to be the communities that say, it turns out there's no rules here. Because what ends up happening is it really degrades the quality of life.
0: He wants to see the court system navigate people in dire situations into better ones. But he does acknowledge the harm that incarceration can inflict on defendants.
6: If you're putting a nonviolent person into custody it actually makes them more violent. It eliminates their options for meaningful housing and work and schooling and military service and everything else. It truly becomes a scarlet letter F for felony or M for misdemeanor. So the power we yield uh, is a very important power. Um, We create a permanent underclass in this country when we brand people that way who are nonviolent.
0: That's something we've heard from other sources, too, like social worker Caitlin Maddox, who works on the Getting Home program. I can't speak to each person's experience, but I do know that we see, you know, progress can be lost during those times. Um, I've never been to jail, but I imagine it's a pretty traumatizing experience. Um, And I think that disruption in plans and goals and resetting. Cause yeah, if my stuff got stolen or, you know, I lost relationships during that time because my friends got moved on and now I don't know where they are and things like that. So it is naturally destabilizing. I think that it's going to naturally upset where they were in progress in the path. Conversely, I think that there are some benefits to having a roof over your head and knowing that you're getting meals for those couple of days. Maybe not the best possible roof if you're unhoused, but it's something. And Ben David thinks there are sometimes other, happier prospects on the other side of a stint in jail. Getting connected to a parole officer is supposed to help an offender straighten out and deal with that accountability.
6: Getting justice involved can be the very best thing that happened to many of the people you're talking about now, because now we're going to get the resources that they truly need. And so I, I think if, if you do it right, it's, it can be a, a good thing in someone's life. Um, They might not know it yet. They might not think that at the police encounter. Um, But talk to the people in our treatment courts and ask them. uh, don't, Don't take my word for it. Ask the people who are going through that whether that was a good thing.
0: Treatment court. That's a special program within the overall court system aimed at helping people who are addicted to drugs or alcohol get clean and get their lives together. Alongside Empowerment Court, which focuses on mental health, and Veterans Court, Treatment Court is an innovative style of jurisprudence that aims to rehabilitate people into a better lifestyle and a more successful life. When we come back, we'll dig into these courtrooms, the judges who administer them, and really look at who these deferment options are for. You're listening to The Newsroom. I'm Kelly Knoyer. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Kelly Knoyer. Thank you for joining us. We've spent this hour digging into the ways the criminal justice system interacts with the unhoused, through interactions with police, stints in jail, and appearances in court. But once someone is convicted, what happens to them? We talked about the low-level cases where people are sentenced to time served, but what about more serious cases the homeless may be involved with, like drug possession? Often that person ends up on parole and just works with a parole officer to meet the court's expectations, following curfew, paying their fees, staying clean, and committing no new crimes. But that can be a real challenge when you live in a tent. One defendant came before Judge J.H. Corpening when I came to first appearances one day. He was in on a parole violation for tampering with his ankle monitor. It turns out the thing had died because he lived in a tent and had no way to charge it.
3: If you're sleeping in a tent, where are you going to plug it in to charge it?
0: He released that guy from jail and said he shouldn't be required to have an ankle monitor. Corpening hopes that in the very near future, the pretrial release system will see some positive changes.
3: I'm hoping that within the next six months, we can launch a project to improve court appearance for folks who are um, experiencing insecurity in housing, where our pretrial can partner with some of the agencies that serve our homeless. They, They already remind them about medical appointments. Can we remind them about court appointments? Because if they miss a court appointment, they get locked up.
0: Those services could go a long way in cutting back on charges for failure to appear, which arise when someone misses their court date. Failure to appear is also a common charge for the unhoused because some of them have trouble accessing transportation. Court can seem a little unfeelingly bureaucratic, especially for those who are already struggling. But there are specialized courts for people with unique and very difficult problems. The oldest is Recovery Court, which used to be called Drug Court when it started back in 1997. Judge James Faison has presided over the program for 20 years. I observed a session of it in December, and the difference was palpable. In my experience covering regular court sessions, you see anxious, tense people sit alone quietly or with a friend or family member to support them. They leave the room for quick conversations with public defenders and wait for the gears of justice to turn. It feels like a cattle call, a bit impersonal and mysterious, with judges, ADAs, and public defenders managing the affairs of the accused for them. Compare that to recovery court. I walked in, and people looked at me with open and curious faces. Each attendee also left the courtroom, not to meet with a lawyer, but to take a drug test. And unlike regular court, where the DA and public defenders are at odds with each other, in recovery court, they're on the same team. Denise Smith is the recovery court coordinator.
3: The drug court team consists of the judge, the probation officers, uh, some treatment folks, one through Coastal Horizons, one through Helping Hand of Wilmington, and uh, the DA, or the ADA, and the two uh, public defenders that work with us.
0: The team takes in referrals, mostly from within the courthouse, and collectively decides who is a good fit for the program. It's a little bit carrot and a little bit stick.
3: We have seen coerced treatment works, you know, and uh, you keep going, you keep trying to do it your way, try to do it your way, and you keep going back to court, and you keep getting like little sanctions, and eventually you're, you're just like, you know what, I'll just, I'll just do what they're asking and see how it goes, and then the change begins. Those
0: little sanctions vary a lot, writing an essay about taking accountability for your actions, filling out worksheets, doing community service, or even doing a quick dip in jail. The carrot is praise and support from the court staff, more freedom and later curfews for success, and gift cards to local businesses or fast food restaurants. But it's so much more than petty little rewards. It's really about the relationships and building hope and dreams for people who've been shattered by addiction, Smith says Judge Faison is uniquely adept at it.
3: He's so good. Um, he's the I feel like the perfect judge for it um, because he's spiritual and he's kind and he, for a judge, is non-judgmental. It's it's amazing. We as a team have talked about it so many times that we learn. Like sometimes I feel like he's talking to me.
0: Right now, there are just over fifty participants in Recovery Court all at different points in their process. Every other Friday, each of the attendees gets their time before the judge, and it's an open and honest conversation lasting up to 15 minutes. Those who are further along in the program get special privileges. They can attend remotely, and they go before any of the other newer participants, and they get to log off right afterwards. For newer participants or those who haven't progressed quite as far, it's a requirement to stay for the entire session and listen to each participant's meeting with the judge. If they've tested positive for a drug screening, the judge sees if they're willing to be honest about it and commends them if they are. Sometimes the attendee is slipping. They fail a drug screen or they miss curfew. Faison gives them some consequence for their failure and talks seriously with them about making better choices in the future. But if they've stayed on track, he cheers them on, giving them almost parental approval and pushing them to achieve their goals.
4: That's the exciting part. And that's the part, again, that is is refueling and re-energizing. Uh, that's the cheerleader part. That's the coach part, you know, where you're able to help them identify their own strengths that they, you know, probably um, they missed because they were so focusing on what's going wrong in their lives, that they miss seeing the good that they're doing and how far they have come and the progress that they've made. And this is an opportunity to let's celebrate it.
0: The court staff, Judge Faison and the parole officers They all work together to reward good behavior and gently correct people who've fallen off the track. They almost never put people in jail, even for quick dips, because they know very well how much jail time can derail a person's life. But the heart of Recovery Court is the one-on-one conversations the judge has with the clients. The eye contact, the personalized touch, 10 minutes of discussion about self-care or divorce or personal responsibility. And these conversations, when people are doing well, or even if they're struggling but still on track, well, they're transformative.
4: Well, the uh, philosophy behind that is that if the person is feeling good from rewards, then maybe that'll replace the feeling good from drugs.
0: When I attended recovery court, I had the pleasure of witnessing a graduation. It was a gentleman named Raymond, perhaps in his 60s. We're not using his last name to protect his privacy. He had come into recovery court after a DWI. He graduated the steps of the program very fast, in 12 months. And at 18 months, he officially completed the program and got off probation. Raymond radiated happiness, and he got a huge round of applause from the entire room when he stood up for the graduation ceremony. Faison stepped down from the bench to shake his hand and give him a certificate of completion, then asked him to share how he succeeded. Recording isn't allowed during the session, but I don't think Raymond would mind sharing what he told in court. He said he couldn't have done it without his community in the courtroom, without Coastal Horizons, or without his probation officer. Recovery Court has a lot of requirements for its attendees, including cognitive behavior intervention. That class aims to teach participants better decision-making skills, not just around choosing to stop abusing drugs, but in making better life choices in general. The program is fantastically successful. That may sound like a bold statement, but the numbers back it up.
4: Our recent uh, evaluation of our program revealed that of the folks that graduated, say, within a year after graduating, 92% did not re-offend. So that's pretty amazing. And then 90% 9% um, were employed, remain employed.
0: When I interviewed Smith, the treatment court coordinator, I asked about housing because of the correlation between addiction and homelessness. She says a lot of people do come into the program without a stable place to live, and that usually changes by the time they graduate.
3: At least half of them um, don't have a place to go. I would say an even higher percentage don't have a safe place to go.
0: Recovery Court often connects participants to housing through treatment facilities, then halfway houses, then rentals or with family. But Smith doesn't look at the court as a pathway to housing in and of itself.
3: Because you have to be involved with the criminal justice system. You have to be an addict and you have to be ready to stop using. And I don't know a lot about the homeless population, but I know that a lot of them are happy being where they are and they're not ready to do something different. But and
0: sees it differently.
4: So it's not an avenue to housing in the classic sense of, you know, go to drug court, you'll get a house. Drug courts, we're kind of mandated or required to assist our clients in accessing services, again, to assist them, or it's like we refer to as wraparound services, to wrap around that individual to help them achieve their recovery goals. So included in those uh, wraparound services are trauma treatment, transportation case management clinical case management services for uh, medical and dental care and then of course housing
0: the court staff tried their hardest to not let participants fail simply because they can't secure housing they set them up with employment tried to connect them with short-term and long-term housing they tried to get them on track to stability one little step at a time over the course of a year and a half and it works a lot of the time but it's not for everyone You have to be addicted to a controlled substance or alcohol, facing a sentence of at least six months in jail, so there's something looming over you if you feel like quitting. That means a lot of our unhoused residents with their third-degree misdemeanors will never qualify. And that means they don't get the court's wraparound services. They may qualify for Empowerment Court, though, if they have other problems. Judge Lindsay McKee oversees that system in the Juvenile Justice Building. When I attended, participants shared cupcakes to celebrate a graduation. The graduate talked about how coming to New Hanover County fundamentally changed his life for the better. He could speak confidently now. He had a community when he used to feel hopeless and alone. It was really something to behold. McKee holds court differently from Faison, but also engages in the motivational interviewing that Faison uses, which all New Hanover County judges have been trained on. She says the charges that land someone in empowerment
5: court are a lot more varied than you would see in drug court. Every single one looks different. There's not consistency. And it really does look different for everyone. You have people from all walks of life in that courtroom. You have people with different family backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds. But across the board, they're struggling with mental health issues. And so it's definitely not a one size fits all.
0: But there's still a little bit of a limit on who gets in. It's class two misdemeanors or higher. So people facing at least 45 days in jail. That means some of our homeless neighbors who get pulled into court for trespassing still don't
5: get offered Empowerment Court. We typically don't see folks that um, have a sentence that's that low um, because a lot of times folks with sentences that low are not placed on supervised probation to start. They may receive unsupervised probation, which would not put them in the realm of participating in our court.
0: Empowerment Court and Recovery Court are both based on a probationary system, so homeless folks sometimes fly under the radar
5: but a decent number of unhoused individuals do get accepted into both court systems. So we do have a number of people in our program that we have worked on housing with. Um, You know, some folks need to go to the healing place because they're in active addiction and they do need the structure and support of a more residential treatment program. We've had great success with other folks um, staying at Link for a period of time, but we're always, what we do is we always try to talk to them about next steps two court systems
0: that help people face their problems, stabilize their lives, and even expunge their records to start with a clean slate after they put in the work. But I can't help but focus on some of the gaps. With more funding, who else could these services be offered to? There are already plans in place to implement a safe baby court aimed at young families, but there are likely many more opportunities to bring rehabilitative techniques into the New Hanover County Courthouse how could the court system intervene? Not just by releasing low-level offenders, but by offering them a hand up in that exact moment. Here's Judge James Faison.
4: It's not the criminal justice system's um, design or even purpose to house people in the the sense of housing that we're we're discussing. Um, It's not designed for that. However, when you are a program like Treatment Court, which is a problem-solving court, When you're dealing with problem-solving courts, that's the idea. We want to solve their problems as much as we can. And if housing is one of those problems, well then, by the fact that they're in our program, now we're duty-bound to uh, assist them and connect them with resources to help them get that kind of housing.
0: Faison would love to see problem-solving court applied to more cases to help more people. Faison says with more resources, New Hanover County could do more specialized courts, like focusing on job training. But he recognizes that's not the only challenge facing people struggling with housing and homelessness. Recovery court requires residency in New Hanover County, and many participants have struggled to find apartments they can afford inside county lines. It keeps them in halfway houses for longer than they might be there otherwise, because they have no other options in the county.
4: If housing is not affordable, And if it's not accessible, then it makes it difficult for them to be able to comply with the conditions of of our recovery court or, you know, live in, in New Hanover County.
0: And of course, high housing costs can make people feel more desperate. More than a third of residents in New Hanover County are housing burdened, meaning they might be just a paycheck or a medical bill away from missing their rent or mortgage payment. The housing crisis contributes to stress and anxiety for all kinds of people, which can have an impact on those in court as well. Studies have shown that housing instability correlates with higher rates of recidivism. And we outlined at the beginning of the show how homelessness can make someone more vulnerable to police contacts and, in turn, jail stays. The Justice Reinvestment Act added risk and needs assessments to figure out who is likely to reoffend. And the needs part of that includes destabilizing factors like unemployment, a lack of financial resources, and unstable housing. That's why assistance in finding housing is one of many wraparound services that Recovery Court provides. A study out of New York City compared two groups, those who were living in and out of homeless shelters and those who were put in supportive housing, places that come with those wraparound services that Faison described. The outcome was that 86 percent of participants who got the wraparound services stayed in their housing, double the rate of those who didn't get wraparound services. They also spent 40% less time in jail and halved their number of hospital stays. That kind of wraparound service is something local housing advocates want to promote, unconnected to the court system. It's the housing first model that deals with the intractable problem of homelessness by housing someone who doesn't have housing. And it works much, much better with wraparound services. That's what we call permanent supportive housing. Such programming doesn't leave out accountability. If a previously unhoused person in a facility like that commits a crime, they still have to go through the justice system, perhaps through recovery court or empowerment court. But their base needs would be met from day one with a lot less pain and anxiety about planning where to go next. Judge Faison knows that intuitively.
4: How can a person focus on their recovery and work steps and work through the program if they don't know where they're going to lay down their head that night?
0: New Hanover County's justice system has moved toward compassion and kindness for the unhoused in the region, even as county ordinances and trespassing laws have tightened on them. As the homeless are facing these pressures, it seems the police, social services, and the court system are trying to reach out for a hand up. The justice system isn't a machine built for raising up the downtrodden in this way, but it's morphing to try and fulfill those needs, slowly but surely. Empowerment Court is just the most recent addition. It started just over a year ago. And with Safe Baby Court coming up later this year, it's clear that the local courthouse is trying to shift its style of jurisprudence. But in the face of pressure from the public and from elected officials to clean up the streets in this community, some of those interactions will inevitably come with handcuffs. And until the region has sufficient shelter space, supportive housing options, and other resources for the unhoused, it will remain that way. That's all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. Thank you to all my wonderful guests. I'd also like to thank the numerous other sources I talked to for this report, including many other staff members and attendees of Empowerment and Drug Court, Public Defender Katie Corpening, Liz Carbone from the Cape Fear Housing Coalition, and many, many sources in Homeless Outreach. Our editor is Ben Shockman. Our technical team is Ken Campbell and Mark Breedy. If you missed part of the program, you can find it at whqr.org or anywhere you get podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Kelly Knoyer. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.